Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the University of Sydney and the Michael Hintzy Lecture for 2018. I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and as many of us are very familiar, part of the protocol of a welcome such as this at the university and elsewhere, of course, is to make an acknowledgement of country. And as a dean, I get to make a lot of acknowledgements. And so a personal challenge for me has been to think about how to make such acknowledgements seem authentic and real, as opposed to perhaps a kind of rhetorical hurdle that we leap over on the way to something more interesting. And part of my thinking around that has been to think about what does it mean to say in this context that we acknowledge something? And it strikes me that acknowledgement is not something um, I or anybody else does up the front in a kind of performative space, but actually something we do collectively um, as, a, as a group acknowledgement. And so on your behalf then, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. The Quadrangle, where we literally are now, has been an ancient meet meeting place for the Gadigal people for thousands and thousands of years. It's on the Gadigal people's ancestral lands, lands that were never sold nor ceded, that the University of Sydney is built. So welcome. Another sold-out event for the 12th annual Michael Hintzy Lecture this evening. Quite appropriate, as the Michael Hintzy Lecture is really a flagship event in the year for the Centre of International Studies, known to many of us affectionately as CIS. It's made possible via a valuable gift from Michael Hintzy that at the same time established CIS as a research centre within the faculty. It might seem a dispiriting comment on our current political climate, but I'd note the multidisciplinary relevance of CIS at our present historical moment, given its brief to produce innovative research and education on the enduring and emerging security challenges facing Australia, but also the Asia-Pacific and the world. I'm going to hand over now to Professor James Dederian, Director of CIS, international security expert and documentary maker, to introduce our speaker this evening, Professor Mary Caldor. Thank you. Well, first, I want to thank Anne Marie um, for the introduction and for her support of CIS. And thank you all for coming to this event, which is made possible through the gift of Sir Michael Hinson. Um, Mary Caldor is the Professor of Global Governance at the Lund School of Economics, where she also directs the Center for Conflict and Civil Society Research. Um, She's a co-founder and the intellectual force of many important organizations, but two that I'm just going to mention was the, um, the nuclear disarmament movement, END, the European Nuclear Disarmament Movement in the 1980s, which was very important for finding a middle way between the bipolarities of the Cold War and then the Helsinki Citizens Assembly Group in the 1990s, which was started at the end of the Cold War and, again, was trying to find uh, an alternative to 
um, of two-block system or simply one-block unipolarity. So um, she's combined this role of a, a scholar, an activist, um, and very much um, a, a political advisor to NGOs, to governments, and to social movements. And she's done it in a lot of different places. She's done it in the Caucasus, um, did notably in the Balkans, um, and um, has recently also been working on, in Syria on the refugee issues. Now, Mary is the author of several um, very highly regarded books and articles uh, about the defense industry, global civil society, and new, of course, and old wars. Um, and most recently, before this book, I'm going to show you, International Law and War. And this is the book um, that she's going to be talking about today, um, Global Security Cultures, which I had the privilege of reading the manuscript, is I think it'll be a major contribution to this debate about how we're really entering into a new, I don't want to use that expression, world order, but something. Disorder. <laughs> disorder. Um, it needs some new thinking, and we get a lot of it in this world. I could go on in this traditional ritual listing all of the awards and accomplishments of Mary Caldor, but I want to do something different because she's not a traditional academic. And I'm, I'm going to do it by um, relating to what I think is unique about Mary is this rare combination of, of personal diplomacy, um, political analysis, and direct action. And um, I first met Mary when she came to the strategic studies seminar of Sir Michael Howard. I think she's the only woman um, probably to come to that seminar probably for the whole year, I bet, right? Yeah. Um, and um, that truly inspired me to uh, start to participate in the disarmament movement. Uh, in fact, I was listed for one of my first speaking gigs as a member of the Oxford Mothers for Nuclear Disarmament. So <laughs> I was part of that group. So. Um, and as large as a very. Um, but where I really got to know her was at a, a quite bizarre conference that took place in Jerusalem called um, Marshall, like in war, Ecologies. And it was run by this remarkable um, reserve brigadier general turned academic. He ran the Strategic Studies Center at Tel Aviv University. And he looked kind of like Michael, no, who did he look like? Michel Foucault, really. And he talked like Michel Foucault. He was a postmodernist general. He was a postmodernist general. <laughs> he loved the Liz. And um, he was destined to fail because he was arguing for a deterritorialization of Israeli politics. <laughs> so so uh, he got captured out. But not before he ran this incredible conference. And Mary was there with some unusual suspects, some usual suspects. Ed Lutback was there. Um, uh, Rosenau, some feminist scholars, and it was quite unique, but uh, it went on for too long, and I decided to play hooky, and I told Mary I was going to go see two friends. One was a political philosopher from the Hebrew University, Yaron Mizrahi, who wrote, I think, the best book about the Intifada called Rubber Bullets, the semiotics and the contradictions of the Israeli occupation. And the second was um, Sari Nuseba, who is also a philosopher, um, and he is the president of the leading Palestinian university in the West Bank, um, um, East Jerusalem, uh, Al-Quds University. So I just told Mary this, and I said that they had not spoken to each other since the Intifada of 1987. Mary immediately took this on as a personal challenge. <laughs> We're going to get them both in the same room to talk politics because there's something rare in Israel and in Palestine. They're moderates. Sari had been in, put in jail by both the IDF, he had been beaten up by PLO thugs, Yaron had suffered for his um, dissident politics, and 
So we undertook what I came to call taxi diplomacy. We first went to Sari's office, then we went to Yaron's office, that you must come together, and you haven't spoke to each other in you know, over a decade, and talk about a, you know, some solutions to this problem. And sure enough, that night we met over drinks at the American Colony Hotel. Now, that's the one place you could, at the time, gather if you're um, from opposite sides of Jerusalem and divide. <coughs> now, I, that story right there was an accomplishment. That was largely Mary, creatively, thinking you, this I through. Think. No, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, what made it special is when um, the second intifada happens, after um, Sharon made his famous march up to the Temple Mount and the second intifada started and riots, Israeli defense forces, occupied for the first time Al-Quds University. And the first place they went to was the only independent broadcast studio in the West Bank, and that was at Al-Quds University, and they trashed it. Now, because of this friendship taken up, Yaron immediately organized a worldwide campaign of Israeli scholars, of, of other political philosophers and academics, to insist that the IDF leave the Al-Quds University in the name of academic freedom. And some of us got together and we organized that the Ford Foundation would raise the money for the broadcast center. And this all came out of that taxi diplomacy that was spur of the moment. And it sort of is just a small snippet of what Mary has accomplished, I think, over a long career of this. And it's quite remarkable. And you know, this is the kind of story that doesn't show up in the media. It doesn't show up in the textbooks that tells the story about international security, that in telling the story reproduces international security as a traditional state-on-state -state violence. So um, it's because of these reasons and others that I think it's a real privilege and a real honor to have Mary here today. So please join me in welcoming Professor Mary Tiger. Actually, that story has quite a long follow-on, and if I had time, <laughs> I'd tell you the follow-up, which is also very interesting. And I'd like to add that on that trip, I took a photograph of James, and the fo I'm very, very proud of the fact that in his book, he's used that photograph, and it says, by Mary Caldor, it's the only time I've had a role as a photographer. <laughs> so... Um, Three weeks ago, as you probably know, two Russians, uh, a, a father and daughter, uh, were poisoned on the streets of Salisbury. And the poison turned out to be the family of nerve gases called Novichok that was developed in the Soviet Union. So Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, um, described the attack as the unlawful use of force on UK soil. Now that phrase, she stopped short of armed attack, which would have triggered Article 5 of NATO, but nevertheless the use of force in international law refers to military force, and that dictated a geopolitical response. So how did she respond? As you probably all know, she expelled 23 Russian diplomats, uh, Russia responded by expelling 23 British diplomats and ratcheting it up by closing the consulate in St. Petersburg and the British Council. And just a few days ago, the European Union and the US 
further expelled diplomats. Um, and what has been achieved <laughs> as a result of this? What has been achieved? Well, in part, um, it probably helped Putin. He was going to win the election anyway, but the turnout was a little bit higher than expected. It also helped Theresa May, who was seen as acting as a strong woman, and uh, at a moment when anti-Brexit feeling was rising, and the Russians have been, as we know, quite supportive of Brexit, of the UK leaving the EU. Um, and probably this was the motivation, both of these factors. In, in effect, the geopolitical response strengthened domestically both leaders. What kind of an alternative could one have imagined? Um, well, an alternative framing could have treated this as a crime. It was a violation of international weapons law, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and it was an extraterritorial violation of human rights. This was an attack on Russian citizens. That's what it was about. It was killing or attempted killing of two Russian citizens. So what would that, framing it as a crime, how would that have changed the response? Well, first of all, there would have been much greater emphasis on the investigation, including actually now the government have called in the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Of course, all the evidence points to Russia, but nevertheless, Novichok, any, any skilled chemist who has access to the ingredients and knows the structure of Novichok, which probably means in a state chemical warfare establishment, could make the agent. And it requires quite a long and painstaking investigation to identify the impurities and side products which would allow you to confirm where the agent was made. And this is very important because if it's a crime, you have a requirement of legal proof. It would also require an investigation in, of this kind into individual responsibility, followed by an appropriate response, say, at taking the case to the European Court of Human Rights or an investigation of flows of Russian money. It should be noted that there have been 14 suspicious murders of Russians in the UK in recent years. None of them, except the Litvinenko case, was seriously investigated. So this is the situation that we face. Now, I'm telling this story because I think it really illustrates what I mean by global security cultures. Um, what I'm trying to say is that Prime Minister May is embedded in the geopolitical security culture. It's embedded in a kind of knee-jerk reaction to an attack of this kind. It's embedded in career structures, political incentives, and it also is embedded in domestic power relations. So what I mean by a security culture is, if you like, a way of doing security. And the geopolitical security culture harks back to the Cold War, harks back to great power conflicts. So let me talk a little bit more about the idea of global security cultures. 
It comes out of a five-year research program we had at the London School of Economics, which was an investigation of what we call the security gap. What did we mean by the security gap? What we meant was that millions of people in the world, this was our research question, are deeply insecure, and yet our security apparatuses, largely consisting of military forces, intelligence agencies, and police forces, don't make them more secure. On the contrary, they probably make them more insecure. I think when we started the project, still basking in the afterglow of the 1990s, we thought this would inevitably lead to a change in how we do security from national security to human security to a focus on individual insecurity. But as became painfully evident as the years passed by, new and much more sinister ways of doing security are gathering pace. In places like Syria or Yemen, or the Congo, we're witnessing phenomena that people of my generation never thought we would experience. The b deliberate bombing of hospitals and schools, extrajudicial killings at long distance, the use of chemical weapons, sexual slavery, all of these are phenomenon that we observe in these places. The insight that was most useful in trying to understand the security gap was the realization that security is such an ambiguous concept. It sounds really obvious when I say it like this, but by security, we mean two quite different things. On the one hand, we're referring to an objective, which means safety. And there's a big literature in security studies about the referent, whose safety, the nation state, the individual, the block, the world, the planet, from what? Violence, poverty, climate change. Um, but at the same time, when we use the word security in everyday parlance, we tend to mean a security apparatus, a set of practices. Uh, whether we're talking about door locks, security at airports, um, military forces, intelligence agencies. It's, that's what we mean when we say security. We don't actually mean safety. And these two things are very much um, separate. And indeed, there's a whole literature about security apparatus that hardly talks to the security, the literature about security apparatus. Particularly important in this respect is the securitization literature which suggests that by doing security, or by saying something is a security issue, you make it very important. It means that security is somehow deeply linked to power relations and to political power. The problem, I think, with both these literatures is that on the one hand, the kind of objective literature assume, tends to be rather naive. It tends to assume that if only you could tell people how to make people safe, governments would change their policies. On the other hand, the practices literature tends to be rather cynical, suggesting that governments are never going to make anybody secure and leaving empty the question of what do you do in places like Syria and Yemen. So the idea of security cultures was somehow to bring together 
objectives and practices, what we realized was the way we defined the security gap was that we were talking about apples and pears. Military forces are not designed to make people feel secure in places like Syria and Yemen. They're designed to meet an attack by a foreign power, or at least to be seen to meet an attack by a foreign power. They're supposed to be protecting us against a third world war, which is the worst form of insecurity anyone can possibly imagine. Um, so there's a sort of complete mismatch in how you answer the question. So that's what led me to start thinking about security cultures. So what about the term culture? Why culture? Well, partly I was in, in the strategic studies literature, the idea of strategic culture has a long history. It began during World War II when the Americans started studying the cultures of the, using anthropologists to study the cultures of the Germans and the Japanese. Uh, and then, very importantly, in the 1950s, these RAND corporations, strategic analysts, who developed all these incredible calculations, people like Thomas Schelling, could not understand why the Soviet Union did not respond to their acts in the way they, their rational calculations predicted. And they came up with the idea of strategic cultures as a way of answering that question, that there's a way of doing uh, military stuff in Russia, in the Soviet Union, that's different from the Americans, and therefore they think... Well... I think this use of, when I use the word culture, I'm referring to what Raymond Williams, who brilliantly wrote about culture, meant the social meaning of cultures. There are other meanings of cultures, the documentary or the ideal. But I'm talking about the social. I'm talking about ways of doing things, narratives, acts, behavior that are kind of embedded in, a, if you like, a system. And... My notion of security culture differs from strategic culture in three ways. First of all, I use the term security. Strategic culture referred to military culture. Um, and I use the term security to refer to any way of either engaging in or addressing large-scale violence. But security doesn't a security apparatus doesn't necessarily have to be military. Um, the second difference, and that's very important, is that it's no longer tied to national or ethnic cultures. The strategic culture people were all caught in, in this geopolitical, single geopolitical culture, but there were little differences, national differences, and strategic culture were about those little national differences. What I'm saying is that geopolitics is now one culture among several. <laughs> And actually, the boundaries are not spatial, but functional. So, for instance, the people who uh, work in the, ministry, in the Russian Ministry of Defense have much more in common with their counterparts in the Pentagon. They're part of the same culture than they do with, say, a UN official or a peacekeeping um, actor. So that's the second difference. It's transnational and social rather than national and ethnic. And the third difference is that 
Global security cultures have to be reproduced. I'm a constructionist. I'm not sure how constructivist, if you like, the uh, strategic culture people were, even though Colin Gray, who's the person most associated with it, claimed he was. But their writings tended to be rather essentialist. You know, the British will always have a maritime strategy because they are surrounded by seas. Or I, I've even found Colin Gray saying Germans will always be Germans. <laughs> so my point is that actually security cultures have to be reproduced. They're reproduced through money and budgets, through politics, through wars, and they evolve all the time. And it's by studying the way they evolve, and, and that's what I've tried to do in the book, is to give a kind of genealogy of different security cultures. We can identify where the sort of security pathways diverge, where contradictions, paradoxes, openings emerge, where we might start thinking about a different kind of security culture that might actually address problems of insecurity in places like Syria and Yemen. So, um, to exp in, in, in this book, I, I define four security cultures. They're not exclusive. One could think of others, and they also overlap. But I think they're quite useful in terms of describing the current security um, uh, landscape. And I think very key to all of them is this point which one takes from the securitization literature that a security culture is very much embedded in power relations. That a security culture, we, we tend to legitimacy, our compliance with political authority really depends on the extent to which we believe they keep us safe. And so security cultures are so um, intertwined with the reproduction of political power. That's a very important point, but the kinds of political power that get reproduced are different in each case. So the first security culture is the geopolitics one, and that was the dominant security culture during the Cold War. That was every nation state, even if whatever it was, had a sort of its military forces, Theo Farrell, sitting here has written a lot about that. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that geopolitics is still dominant in terms of narratives and budgets. The vast bulk of defense spending worldwide is still within a geopolitical framework. Geopolitics is associated with the nation state. In the Cold War, it was associated with blocks. Um, and the objective, as I said earlier, is defense against another nation state, or at least to be seen to be ready to defend against another nation state. And each of these security cultures have their own forms of technological change, their own specific trajectories. And um, the trajectory of geopolitics is what I call, have called from my very early work, Baroque technological change. It's more and more expensive, sophisticated, complicated weapon systems, whether they're aircraft carriers or missiles or whatever. That's typical of the geopolitics. They're meant to be very visible symbols of geopolitical resolve. The second 
security culture is new wars. And I think it's actually quite useful to think of new wars, contemporary wars, as a culture rather than as a contest or a deep-seated conflict. And typically, um, in new wars, new wars are actually not about winning or losing. They're about violence itself. The typical new wars is characterized by a multiplicity of armed groups who gain economically from violence, loot, pillage, smuggling of antiquities, drugs, um, and who gain politically because violence is a way of creating the kind of fear necessary to foster extremist and exclusive ideologies, whether they're ethnic, extreme nationalism, or religious jihadism. And this kind of culture is associated with what's sometimes called in the literature hybrid or informal local political authorities. It's a multiplicity, it's the fragmentation of the state and a multiplicity of authorities. And the typical technology of new wars is what I call vernacular technology. It's technology that somehow gets combined with in information and communications technology, but uses domestic ingredients. The sort of, if you like, the paradigmatic example is the improvised explosive device, which uses easy to hand ingredients like fertilizers or detergents, but then combines them in clever ways with using mobile phones to trigger the devices. And there's a really, it's really interesting part of a project that we were involved in to sort of follow the way different armed groups have learned from each other in developing these systems. Um, these wars evolved out of the civil wars of the 60s and 70s, which were typically left-right wars, wars against colonialism, wars against authoritarianism. But they morphed into new wars after 89. And I, just one point I want to make, because I'll come back to it at the end, is that I think a big one of the big changes, many that I could describe, but for time reasons I won't go into, <laughs> that led to this shift, was the fact that in the 60s and 70s, stu young radical students and intellectuals all wanted to go to the mountains and join a radical insurgent group. After 89, they wanted to go on the streets and protest for democracy. And that's how nearly all these new wars begin. And there's a real confusion. Syria is a very good case. The vast majority of the people who protested on the streets in Syria thought the turn to violence would be a huge mistake, that they could never defeat Assad through violent means. And that was, if you like, the ideology of 89 that the only way you can change society is changing it politically, not by force. And the people who took up arms were often entrepreneurs, sometimes uh, people from government or from regimes. Uh, William Reno, the African scholar, talks about warlord rebels, who were, if you like, military entrepreneurs who built on this and recruited poor young men, often unemployed after a period of neoliberalism, to their militias. And this is very important to understand because I think you can, uh, these wars have to be, the new war culture has to be understood as, if you like, an attack 
on democracy and civility. It was a way of diverting democratic demands into ethnic or extreme religious demands and replacing um, civility with violence. The third security culture is the liberal peace. And by the liberal peace, I'm referring to the enormous growth in international multilateral peace operations uh, that happened after 89, although the liberal peace has its origins much earlier. And um, it involves what Mark Duffield calls a strategic complex of peacekeepers, NGOs, humanitarian agencies, you name them. Um, and very much is associated with international institutions, whether it's the United Nations, the European Union, um, OSCE. There are many, many, the African Union, there are many different international institutions with which these operations are associated. Um, and, and it involves, if you like, four components, humanitarianism, peacemaking around agreements, uh, peacekeeping, and peacebuilding. And the basic point I want to make about it now, but I will come back to the liberal peace at the end, is that the big problem with the liberal peace is indeed its history, um, a history given to us actually by Professor Michael Howard. <laughs> its history as imagining a peace in a geopolitical contest, imagining a peace between two states. And so what it does is it assumes that new wars are the same as wars between states. And that actually subverts, which I will explain later, every aspect of, um, it, of uh, the functioning of the liberal peace. It means the liberal peace always has huge problems in actually implementing uh, peace in the way a sustainable peace and I'll come back to those contradictions because I do think it's out of those contradictions that one could th develop some alternative and then finally the last security culture I want to talk about is the war on terror and unlike geopolitics even though it's evolved out of geopolitics the war on terror, the reason I regard it as a distinct security culture is that it's the war of the manhunt. Um, it's a war against individuals, against terrorists. Um, since 9-11, if you like, I mean, what began after 9-11 was, if you like, framing 9-11 um, in a geopolitical way as an attack on the United States. It led to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which you could argue was a geopolitical response, but it morphed. It, you then had a long period of counterinsurgency, which was still in quite a traditional mode. And then it morphed into what we now have, which is counter-terror, which is, I think, a very specific culture involving a new combination of actors um, the intelligence agencies, private security contractors, um, drones, surveillance, new kinds of technology, and basically involves 
long-distance extrajudicial killing. And, you know, the, the prohibitions against assassinations, which actually were sustained up to 9-11, have been completely undermined. And I was very shocked recently when there was this discussion of a ceasefire in Ghouta, that the, all the act in eastern Ghouta in Syria, uh, uh, all the actors said the ceasefire, of course, doesn't apply to terrorists. <laughs> So terrorists are kind of beyond the pale. They're not really human. Uh, they don't fit the laws of war, even though the laws of war are used to justify their being combatants. They're completely beyond the pale, and the war on terror is about hunting them down and killing them using new means. So before I come to the last point about where are the alternatives, I just want to give a few examples, it's, it's not possible to give more, of how these security cultures combine in different ways. Um, and, and, and I'll just give you a few examples. So the first way in which they combine is, you can, is the combination of the liberal peace and the new wars culture, of which Bosnia is the classic example. And what you get when you combine new wars with liberal peace is what I call hybrid peace. <laughs> so what Bosnia did was it reached a peace agreement, but that peace agreement was based on a very traditional assumption about war uh, in which the key actors were the armed groups. So what the peace agreement did was it stopped the violence between the armed groups, but it entrenched basically the ethnic warlords. Now Bosnia, the peace in Bosnia for the moment has been sustained but it's involved an enormous amount of resources. More money, um, more money per head for each Bosnian citizens than martial aid in the aftermath of the war. Huge numbers of troops and yet the lure of membership of the European Union and yet despite this Bosnia is a totally dysfunctional society, something like 40% unemployment, rich ethnic oligarchs. Um, and if you visit Bosnia, as I did say a year ago, you have the feeling the war never ended. People talk, you know, there are garish new mosques, garish new Orthodox churches. People talk all the time as though the war is continuing. But hybrid peace is probably the best that we get. The second combination I wanted to mention is geopolitics and new wars, which gives you hybrid war. And that's the Ukrainian example, where Russia has, and the West have acted out their geopolitical games in the Ukrainian context. Um, and what you find is that the more the West says this is geopolitics, the more it legitimized the Russian role in Ukraine. And so you get geopolitics being played out through you know, what the Russians call political technology, what we're seeing in Trump land, what we saw in Brexit, in an extreme way um, in Ukraine. And indeed, they, they have theorized this, I won't go into it now, as non-linear war. So, that's the second example. And then the final example is Syria, which involves the war on terror, new wars, 
and geopolitics altogether. This, it's hugely destructive. Something like half a million people have been killed. Uh, um, the, I think it's something like four or five million refugees and many more displaced people. Uh, it produces extremism. Uh, and it has undermined all the norms that I mentioned before. It's where you've seen the bombing of schools and hospitals, where you've seen the drone attacks. And I'd just like, as a sort of very specific example, uh, which was something we did in our research, is to take the example of chemical weapons. So chemical weapons, as I mentioned at the beginning, are the subject of a chemical weapons convention. And during the era of the Cold War, the use of chemical weapons was taboo. And that taboo was upheld through the convention. Part of the reason for the taboo was the fact that chemical weapons weren't very useful within a geopolitical framework. You can protect against ge uh, chemical weapons. There are defensive measures, but they're hugely cumbersome. And nobody wants to fight in cumbersome chemical weapons protective clothing. So all sides had an interest in banning chemical weapons. And so as long as you were within a geopolitical security culture, you could uphold the norms against chemical weapons. But for the war on terror and for new wars, chemical weapons have new utilities because they're absolutely ideal against unprotected civilians, they create a very visible atrocity, which is what you want to achieve if your goal is population displacement. I haven't gone into all of this before. And the problem, therefore, is that nowadays the Chemical Weapons Convention is being deeply undermined by its usage in Syria and elsewhere. So, I can't finally come to the end. I have not kept my time at all. I haven't been... I have, okay. So, finally, is there a way out? And what I think we learn by going through all of this is that in terms of individual insecurity, none of the methods work in terms of helping insecure people. New wars and the war on terror might help in their own terms, you know, the war on terror creates more terrorists and therefore you need more war on terror. So it kind of reproduces itself. And the same is true of new wars. And actually they feed each other because new wars are actually terror wars. Um, but they don't work in terms of safety. They don't, they're making us all very much more insecure. So I think the best hope arises out of the contradictions of the liberal peace. And as I said, I think the problem of the liberal peace is that it's anchored in a very old-fashioned conception of what war is. And you can see how that affects each of the components of the liberal peace. Um, humanitarianism, for instance, is both humanitarian aid, which is supposed to be emergency aid, and the idea of the distinction between the combatant and the non-combatant breaks down in new wars. And what you actually get is a kind of hu long-term humanitarian business that in fact does the opposite of helping in an emergency or protecting civilians. It just further feeds the violence. Peace agreements. If you 
take the old-fashioned assumption of war and you say we're going to negotiate a peace between the parties to the conflict, what you do is to entrench the armed groups. And indeed, in some of the conflicts I study, you find people actually forming armed groups in order to participate in peace agreements, in order to get a position in government. So, peace agreements, if you're lucky, the armed groups will agree not to fight each other, and that may reduce the violence, as in Bosnia. Uh, but often, peace agreements get broken and have to be undertaken continuously and all over again. Um, peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is designed to separate the armed groups. But in these kinds of wars, the armed groups mostly use violence against civilians. So it doesn't actually stop violence against civilians, except in so far as violence between the groups kind of legitimizes the violence against civilians. And then finally, peace building, because the armed groups are the ones entrenched in a peace agreement, they're able to subvert all efforts at trying to build peace, all efforts at reform, all efforts to stamp out corruption, and the result is the kind of corrupt, problematic, patrimonial systems you see in places like Congo or Bosnia. So what is the alternative? And my argument goes back to this point that the new wars culture is, a is, is fundamentally an attack on civility. The answer is that international institutions, rather than treating the armed groups as partners, need to partner with elements of civility. Um, and um, I think what's important to notice is that these new war cultures are very fragmented and decentralized. And in all of these situations, you find areas that have kept out of the war. Uh, in all of these, you know, just to take Syria, for example, in the last year alone, there were 44 local ceasefires. Now, some of these were surrenders, but some of them were simply local citizens absolutely fed up with the war. Very often in Syria, this is quite interesting, people are desperate for public services, for electricity, water, and uh, the armed groups can't provide it, so they have to rely on local citizens, and those local citizens say, well, we need you to stop fighting. And this is a very typical pattern that happens, but that's very insecure, and very fragile. <laughs> a, a wonderful case, actually, is the case of Hama, where there's a family with nine brothers, eight of whom are businessmen, one of whom is a sheikh who joined the opposition. And this family have constantly negotiated to keep the armed groups out of Hama. So the key to this, I think the key to building this partnership uh, between the international institutions and civil, civil elements, civil society, local municipalities, whatever you mean by these elements, is to reframe war as crime. New wars and the war on terror deliberately violate international law in every respect. New wars violate both international humanitarian law and human rights law. Uh, the war on terror also violates international humanitarian law um, and the prohibition on assassination.
Um, and what would be involved in reframing? Um, they violate the international law that characterizes geopolitics and the liberal peace, which are in a way the old security cultures. <laughs> So we have to rethink it as a crime and develop a new security culture that can address these issues. What are three crucial elements? One, I think, is the construction of legitimate uh, political authority. That's absolutely central, that isn't dependent on coercion, that isn't dependent on force. That's key. And that means working with civil society groups. Secondly, a much greater emphasis on justice. The liberal peace always tends to assume that peace comes before justice. But actually, if you understand new wars as a culture in which the kind of rules that characterize civil society are violated, then justice is the only way to answer these kinds of situations. And finally, I think another aspect, hugely important, are economic and social measures that shift the illegitimate economies that characterize new wars cultures and actually shifts the sort of uh, huge flows of oligarchical money that characterize these situations. So as a very last point, what I want to emphasize is that this necessitates global approaches, that actually elements of in these insecurity cultures, the war on terror, the new wars, do actually affect us, not just in places like Syria and Yemen, but in our own societies, whether we're talking about the Trump phenomenon, Putin, or the Brexit phenomenon in Britain, associated with the rise of extremist politics, the rise of hate crime. So actually how we act in something like Salisbury is key to reconstructing our understanding of what's happening today and, and, and ways of addressing much more widely pervasive insecurity. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to um, open it up, but I just wanted to prime the pump by asking Mary to say a word or two about culture, because we all know that culture's been weaponized in various wars, and it also <laughs> has been um, utilized by you know, international relations theorists like Sam Huntington to justify yeah. that there's an essentialist difference between cultures. So how do you implement your more sort of, call it what you will, hybrid culture or pluralist culture as opposed to the culture that, you know, uh, a, a soldier going off to war in Afghanistan or Iraq would carry in their cargo pocket as, you know, this is what the culture of Iraq is, or this is what the culture of Afghanistan is. How do you build a civil society culture as opposed to these essentialist cultures? You know, the way I use culture, and I spend a lot of time trying to think what time would be the right term. Um, you know, I was very much influenced by the science and technology studies literature that talks about a socio-technical techno-economic paradigm. You know, I wondered, should I call it a security paradigm? Um, because I was also very, you know, the context for this is that I do think we're moving from, uh, uh, if you like, I think the transition period that we live in 
is a transition between an American-dominated model of development, which was based on the intensive use of oil, the car, and all of these things, to a new model of development that is very much associated with information and communications technologies. And economists do a lot of thinking about the new economy. And I, my starting point is thinking about the new security. You know, how is security going to shift as a result of shift in the model of development? And um, eventually I came up with cultures, with lots of discussions, including from my colleague Sabine, who's somewhere there, um, as a social rather than as an ethnic conception of culture. I mean, strategic culture was very much an ethnic conception of culture. This is a social conception of culture. And I think very useful is the article I mentioned by Raymond Williams. Raymond Williams has sort of three definitions of culture. One is uh, culture as something to be aimed at, as a sort of notion of human perfection, mm. to be a cultured person. A second is the documentary, music, literature. And we talk about culture as going to see La Boheme or whatever. And the third is social, which is the way you think of social ways of doing things in ethnic terms. But of course, Raymond Williams was interested in what popular culture. So that's what I'm trying to say. It, it's a, you know, we could have called it a mode of security, but I wanted something that would embrace more the way in which we get habituated to certain ways of thinking about the world, to certain ways of doing things. That's what I'm trying to get at by cult. So we need to become anthropologists. Yeah. But I think people like you and me always have been in a way. We've always been interested in sort of digging and yeah. talking to, trying to find out. Right. Give me our hands dirty, as they say. Um, we're going to go around um, and take some questions from folks. Um, I saw a hand pop up over here, but now it's going to again. Okay. Sir. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so, in terms of security cultures, what happens when we misread security cu uh, cultures? For example, seeking attention. The Salisbury example was seeking attention. Um, you could argue that the Syria war is seeking attention, and you could argue what's happening on North in North Korea is seeking attention. In fact, we might even be misreading that, thinking it's about us, and every launch is about its. Interaction with China and how China values North Korea. Um, are we sort of in danger of actually causing wars by misreading uh, the culture of attention? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, what I, I do think is the case, and I think this is the weird thing about geopolitics. I mean, geopolitics is supposed to be about fighting wars, but actually it's much more about communication. You know, you always get this discussion about soft power versus hard power, and geopolitics is supposed to be hard power. But actually, those aircraft carriers and sophisticated aircraft aren't really intended to be used. They're for show. <laughs> and the question is, how do we interpret that show? And, I do think that what, there is a big danger, just of the kind you say, because the more you emphasize the geopolitical approach, the more you play into the hands of others. Uh, and that's what we're seeing over Salisbury. 
I mean, who is going to suffer as a result of what Putin has done? Not Britain, not Theresa May, but actually people in Russia who want to travel, who want to go uh, to the consulate to get a visa, people in Russia who want to learn English. Those are the people who are going to suffer, who are just the sort of people that Putin would like to suffer. So I think the seeking attention problem, but I also think you're right. I mean, when we see the ratcheting up of the nuclear stuff, it's really alarming. It, it's sort of very much deja vu. I talked to people in Washington, D.C., and they kept saying, there's a gap in the escalation ladder. And I thought, my God, where did I hear that before? And what the hell does it mean? You know, it means nothing except a sort of esoteric, mad nuclear logic. But the problem is, if it is going to be imitated and copied, it could have very dangerous consequences, leave alone the incredible cost of this stuff, which could be used for other purposes. Mary, it's lovely to see you again. Um, I work now for um, James and his team in CISS, or as an adjunct. Um, 18, 19 years ago, uh, you came to speak to a group of us uh, when we were at uh, Cambridge doing the MPhil. Uh, and there were, there were halcyon days um, before everything that we're seeing now took place. Uh, one of the arguments I have, we're now in an intergenerational war. We're handing over to our sons, and you have a son, I know. Um, and we're handing over to them the mess that we've almost left behind. So my question is twofold. Do you have any regrets? And secondly, what would you be doing differently and saying differently now to those men and women you were lecturing 18, 19 years ago? Um, I think the big regret of many of my generation was that we thought the battle about social justice was won. And so we focused on issues like human rights, minority rights, sexual rights, all of these issues. And that was, I think, particularly important when it came to 1989, when I look back at why 89 was so easy. <laughs> I realize it was because uh, the Russian um, nomenclature or the East European nomenclature suddenly saw an opportunity to exchange their political positions for unimaginable wealth. And they le leapt on the kind of neoliberal philosophy and they created huge riches and that's left us with a terrible mess. And I think the fact that we allowed these neoliberal ideas, we never really challenged them these market ideas, because we thought we'd won those battles. I think that's the big regret I had. I mean, I do remember in Eastern Europe in the early 90s having discussions with people about it, and they kept trying to explain that, you know, we don't like nationalization because it increases the power of the state, all of which I agree with, you know, and somehow, but they somehow wanted they somehow didn't realize they had to abandon everything. I mean, one would say, but you have this brilliant public transport system. Do you really want to give it up? <laughs> uh, so I think that's the issue that I feel most regretful. I think, I, I think none of us realized how dangerous uh, was the trend. And actually, now this is getting even more reminiscent. I mean, 
certainly my father, who was a Keynesian economist, recognized it very strongly and, you know, argued that when he started to work in the 1920s, it had been a similar situation. And now I feel, when I talk to the young who are engaged in sexual justice struggles, is they don't realize the dangers of so, you know, what, you know, every generation has a different preoccupation. They don't realize how dangerous many of them, these sort of identity-based politics are. Uh, so I think that's equally problematic, and I think that's something, you know, really a problem, that each generation emphasizes its own issues and sometimes forgets the issues of the past. But can I push you a little bit, because I, I do remember the sort of will, utopian or optimistic um, hopes and beliefs of post-1989, where you were putting, investing a lot in civil society groups, global civil society groups, through the mm. Helsinki Citizens Assembly. But did you foresee the rush to NATO, this sort of re-fortification sort of fortification of those security cultures, the geopolitical? Not foresee, because it's so hard to foresee, but would there have been some ways to uh, anticipate and perhaps avoid that rush to Well, I think NATO. that we did foresee. And I remember having real arguments with my East European friends about NATO. I mean, during the Cold War, including with President Václav Havel, we argued that what we wanted was to replace both NATO and the Warsaw Pact by the OSCE. And then there was a kind of, for a while, there was an argument, well, can't NATO be the military branch of OSCE? And maybe that would have been possible if they'd allowed Russia to join. <laughs> that could have been an option. But they somehow had this idea that they wanted to be Western. But certainly, I mean, we had arguments and fights about it. So I don't think that's something we failed to do. We just lost on those battles. But the civil society, civil society, I'm still, maybe I'm just an old-fashioned optimist, but, you know, I still put a lot of faith in civil society activities. And when I meet these amazing civil society activists from Syria, you know, I just think it's extraordinary what they do. They hold society together in the midst of all these horrors, and they get very little support from outside, unlike was the case during the 1990s in the Balkans. And they are the hope of the future. Uh, but also, and it's something I felt during the Balkans, my feeling is that it's terribly important to support those groups even if they don't succeed just because of who they are, just to sustain an element of integrity in these situations. Please, give the mic right up there. Hi. Um, so this kind of builds off what you were just saying. It's a question around, um, I'm intrigued that you chose to um, highlight those four cultures of security but didn't um, talk about a culture of human security or feminist security or the kind of maybe more utopian. Mm. Um, and is it just because you didn't find any empirical evidence of that or was there a reason that you, you chose not? Well, actually, in the book... I treat human security um, as a sort of, if you like, branch of the liberal peace. <laughs> and the final chapter about moving out of the contradiction of the liberal peace is shifting the 
integral piece towards human security. And not only that, I also talk about how the human has, is not just bare life, as Agamben would put it, human is gendered, <laughs> cultural, so feminist issues are hugely important. Uh, that's how I treat it. I don't think this is yet a culture. It could be a culture, uh, but it isn't kind of embedded in ways of doing things. It's what I'd like to be a culture. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to ask a question about the, um, regarding the Novichok um, poisoning, that do you think that the response would not have been so strong if there hadn't been a previous context of um, meddling in elections and far more seriously the bombing in Syria? Um, in that respect, I remembered reading some months ago with horror a very powerful uh, figure because he took the place, I forget his name, but he took the place of somebody who had been imprisoned and he, he was actually imprisoned himself for years. He, he, he did so on personal religious grounds. But he said that the war in Syria is the beginning of the Third World War. And Russia is very much behind that. There are two questions there, and I'll answer them both, because they're both very interesting. <laughs> on the issue of Novichok, first of all, while Theresa May appeared to act in a strong way, my whole point is really that it wasn't very strong. And actually, she was Home Secretary during the whole period that these 14 suspicious murders took place. Not only that, now I'm being, I don't know, probably um, suable, um, but, you know, the Tories, the Conservatives, have benefited from Russian oligarch money and Brexit campaign benefited from Russian oligarch money. And I think that explains why they were so unwilling to investigate the suspicious murders. I'm sorry if I sound very conspiratorial, but that's how I see it. So, Recorded, by the way. Oh. <laughs> but so my feeling is that you know, you to use nerve gas on the streets of Salisbury, you have to react somehow. And actually, that is the damage has been very reluctant to it. So In a way, that's what, how I kind of start the book, which is that we live in a time of great foreboding. People often compare the present to the 1930s. We think something horrible is going to happen, and we imagine something horrible will be World War III. My feeling is that it won't be World War III, but actually that something horrible is already happening. And it's sort of, if you like, a new war, what I call a new war on a global scale. And it's equally horrible, but horrible in very different ways. It's much harder to end. Uh, maybe the scale of killing is not quite so big, but the suffering is very great. And, you know, I don't think people realize how much these wars have infected our own societies, whether it's through terrorism 
whether it's through money. I mean, uh, you probably know that the London property market is, the prices are so incredibly high because it's the best method of money laundering. So whether it's Russian oligarchs or Syrian warlords buying property as a way, they buy a company in the Cayman Islands which then buys property and then when they sell it. So, you know, I think all of this is infecting and I think that's infecting not just the economy and the fact that people can't afford houses in London. It's actually infecting political behaviour which increasingly depends on large flows of cash. Last year's Michael lecturer. It's James. Uh, so, Mary, I think it's fair to say that what the IR community expects from you uh, is the person that's going to produce uh, big ideas, the new ways of framing things and looking at things. Uh, and I, and I, from what how you've described it, move from ethnic strategic cultures to these functional, transnational, global security cultures is a big exception. Uh, so uh, you, you've kind of delivered what's expected of you, and so I'm very much looking forward to reading the book. I, I think that's a big exception. And, but I want to ask you a question about um, what I be I expect towards the end of the book, which is the recommendation of what to do mm. next, and you, you've touched on it in the lecture. Uh, uh, and, and just to say from my own experience, the work I did in Afghanistan, I, I think your argument, your observation, for instance, about there's a lot happening locally that can be leveraged, that can really mediate these conflicts is absolutely correct. And so, for instance, a bit like the taxi diplomacy, another great conceptual move. Uh, I like that. Uh, I was involved in the sidelines in some um, work that we did, track to work with the Taliban, about mm -hmm. how can we um, leverage local ceasefires. And, and what was quite interesting in 2013 was that the international forces, uh, ISAF, weren't interested in ceasefires. They had no one working on local ceasefires, and yet there was a lot of stuff there that could have been developed, a lot of lessons that could have been learned. So that was quite interesting work at the time. Um, but, I, but I think there is a, there is, it's not unproblematic, and that's where I want to ask the question and slightly push you, uh, which is, um, I think there will be very few people in the room who would disagree with the normative sentiment of saying, what we want to do is shore up the forces of civility. We want to identify those civil society groups, and here you're, of course, leveraging your, your work in that space, which is very significant. We want to support and shore up the civil society groups and thereby see how we can mediate violence. But if you look at Afghanistan, what's very interesting and paradoxical is that the way that the West attempts to stabilize the country is to work through Karzai as a new president. And he co-ops all of the warlords into his government. And the reason why he does that is because if he doesn't do it, he's facing a potential civil war. And so all of the warlords come into government and in that same one move to stabilize the country, it undermines the whole project because corruption is then in the DNA of the whole. And, and we've never been able to walk away from that. And the reason why the war in Afghanistan, would, with there's no solution, is because corruption, why that moves into it. So what do you do then? I mean, how do you avoid work? How can you avoid working with the people with the guns? Because the basic problem is that they have the guns. Well, actually, I mean, that's, I, I agree with every single word you've said. Um, but of course, the original sin was bringing the warlords into the Bonn Agreement, which was a typical example of what I call the hybrid peace. But even worse in the case of Afghanistan, Afghanistan, I would have given that as my example of liberal peace meets war on terror. <laughs> 
Because actually, the Americans were in a unique position to deal with corruption, because half of those warlords were actually American citizens. They were squirreling away money into Dubai. greatly shored up and hence my emphasis on justice something all the civil society people made why didn't they do it because they were their partners that's why they didn't and they were in a position now the same kind of argument so my feeling is when I talk about allying with civility, I'm really talking about almost taking a political stance that affects all levels. Um, you know, it, it affects the national level as well as the local level, and as well because there's lots of national level, the problem of the war on terror in Afghanistan. But yes, and I would add, Theo, that I'm also indebted to you for your argument about. Was it the isomorphic security culture? The very important influence on this book. Sounds sexy. I want to hear more about this. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let's, we have time for two more questions. Uh, up there, Laura, if you mic up. We have our most athletic uh, postgrads here. They're really good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for a wonderful talk, Mary. I really enjoyed it. I've been scribbling frantic notes. Um, I wonder if I could ask you to, um, to talk a little bit about work that you um, did with Christine on gender and new wars, um, and specifically to trace that through the typology. I'm, I'm curious whether you see the same logics of gender and race and coloniality in each of those security cultures, or whether there are different logics operating across those different cultures? That's a great question. <laughs> oh, yeah. You mean, I mean, yes, so Christine Chinkin is my friend and co-author. She's a feminist international lawyer, and we've just written a book together on international law and new wars. And actually, one of the things that happened was she always felt I made sweeping statements as a lawyer. She would sweeping statements. and I would unpick her sweeping statements. So we've been talking together, we've done an article together, and we've been talking about doing a project together on gender and wars. And our key point is that every war is gendered, but it's gendered differently. So actually, just what you said, we could do a really interesting analysis of how gender relates to these different security cultures, and it would always be slightly different. So geopolitics is the you know, the man fights and protects the woman at home. That's the kind of masculinity, that the hero masculinity that's constructed through the geopolitical security culture. But new wars, and I think I said something the other day a little bit about it, it's much more fragmented and extreme masculinity that's constructed in new wars is a very extreme form, you know, with direct attacks on women, gender, sexual violence, which is true in all wars, but being used as a weapon of war. 
Um, and so it's an extreme version of masculinity that's also very unstable because it can only be reproduced through violence. So it's another factor in the persistence of new wars. It's another factor that contributes to the constant need to reproduce that kind of masculinity. But because the wars are so fragmented, you also have other types of gender relations characterizing civil society or characterizing traditional authorities. So sort of trying to these different types of gender relations. I mean, we plan to do it about new wars, but it would be a really nice project. And I probably should have done more of it in this book in thinking about it in relation to these different security cultures. Well, we are trying to establish a new research cluster on this very question, so please include <laughs> us in your project. We will. OK. Well, um, yeah, we were absolutely, we, you know, we issued a call for papers and we were completely overwhelmed and we got some really fantastic papers including from a Nigerian policewoman, a woman lecturer at the University of Kashmir. It was just incredible what, we, what came through so I hope we'll be able to keep doing this. Okay, we have one more question here. I better make it count then. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I noticed that we've been discussing a lot of past problems and current problems, but I haven't actually, there weren't any actually answers about practical solutions for the next year or next five years or next 10 years. You mentioned that there should be someone allocated to, to be able to distribute and plan how to solve those problems because we can discuss the current problems but without actually giving the solution What's the point? So uh, my question is, what do you think are, what are the practical solutions, what we can do right now to improve the situation in Syria? And for example, in 10 years, when hypothetically the war could be finished, what would be, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually not, not funny, but, um, uh, well, what would be what would be the ways of uh, prevention if something like that reoccurring in the future? Yeah. So, in the book, what I'm trying to explain is, in a way, why the ideal solution and why we any ideal solution in an understanding of how the world is and where the openings are. And what I've tried to argue is arise in the contradictions of the liberal peace, which means at the level of international institutions. And actually, look, I mean, at particularly the European Union, um, there are really thought through strategies. They're not implemented, but they're really thought through strategies about how to address conflict. The global strategy of the European Union that came out the day after Brexit. And it's interesting at the moment, particularly in relation to Syria, that both the Russians and the Americans expect the European Union to pay for the construction. So the European Union actually has a lot of leverage. But the issue much, and, and I could go through what the practical steps that it might take. You know, for example, um, one interesting development in Eastern Ghouta has been the pressure to develop a civic committee 
to negotiate the ceasefire in place of the armed groups? Could you have international monitors there? We could talk that would prevent the armed groups from taking advantage of the ceasefire and allow the humanitarian assistance. And could they be EU or UN? There are lots of practical ideas around um, that I think exist and could be tried out. The question is all to do with politics, actually. It's to do with the problem of the disintegration. I mean, at the level of, say, the Commission in the Europe, and, and for some smaller European states like Sweden and Denmark, there are good kind of ideas, <laughs> Portugal. But the problem is that there isn't, politics doesn't really exist at a European level. And actually, to get solutions, you know, there are such big issues facing us. I mean, I'm totally preoccupied with the Brexit problem and the fact that unless we reverse Brexit, the chances of the European Union becoming an effective actor are very small. People, we, we're surrounded by Trump, Putin, and so on. So actually, I think the practical solutions really consist of political engagement. All right, well, there's other questions, I'm afraid. Uh, we do have to come to a close, and I want to thank a few people. Um, Sydney Ideas, our wonderful collaborators in, in organizing these events, and FAST and Anna Marie for her support. And Sabina, Selkow referenced uh, me, talked to her from LSE, she's now here at CIS, at the University of Sydney, and uh, Melinda Rankin, who helped um, originally um, convinced Mary to make the long trip here. And all particularly um, the people who work with CIS to make this happen, Jose, and um, uh, we're also, <laughs> you looked worried all evening. Is, are you getting this on film? <laughs> it's just okay. It's very good to be having this on film because people can come back and, and, and watch this. And Claire Hudson, who's not in the room, who helped organize this whole event. And of course, all the So thank you all. But most importantly, I want to thank Mary for her, um, not just the intellectual contributions you've made over the years on all these very, very difficult issues, but the courageous actions you've taken um, in the field and coming here to share um, your experiences with us. So join me in thanking uh, Professor Mary Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.